Hello, dear listeners, and welcome back to What the Flame Whispers. This is your host, Cheskino. If you've been enjoying the podcast, I'd like to take a moment to request that you leave a positive rating and review on Apple Podcasts or your preferred platform, and to share the podcast with your loved ones. In the spirit of Valentine's Day, today's story is about two people going on their first date together. If you thought that dating your fellow Earthlings was awkward, imagine going out with someone from another planet. Please enjoy. First Date Written and narrated by Chiskino Brooks DeVita I checked the time again on my phone. She was 15 minutes late. No messages from her in the last few hours. Had she forgotten? Or lost interest? My heart sank a bit. I had been intrigued by her since her first message popped up in my inbox, simultaneously praising my most recent weekly blog post while challenging a few of my assertions with counter-arguments that I would never have anticipated. Her arguments were succinct, cogent, and articulate. Upon reading that message, I was honestly a bit embarrassed that my blog's casual tone seemed so... uncultured by comparison. She hadn't seemed to care, however. Each message, though cordial, was virtually brimming with an earnest appreciation of ideas, and how to argue them most effectively, that was rivaled, among my acquaintances, only by one of my favorite professors from college. She fascinated me. The philosophical digital exchange gave way to friendly messages pinged back and forth on the phone, and after a couple of weeks, I worked up the nerve to ask her whether she wanted to meet for coffee, or bubble tea, or soda, or whatever she happened to drink. Not knowing what she might want or even be able to drink was a potential problem in itself. I thought myself pretty worldly, but I realized shortly after she accepted my invitation, with a smiley alien emoji, that I had no idea how her anatomy functioned. I had dated only girls from Earth before. Could she even drink coffee? Was caffeine harmful or even deadly to her species? Recently, a group of extraterrestrial tourists whose species had not previously visited Earth made the sector's news headlines when they tried caffeinated drinks for the first, and last, time. A few had died. A couple of my friends from college came by and interrupted my train of tragic thoughts. Hey, Zen, the taller of the two, Bale, brown-haired, clean-shaven, and fully human, called out. Hey, guys, I said, feeling slightly deflated. Tonight's the big date, right? asked the other, Cha'an, who was shorter and had mocha-colored skin and blonde dreads and facial hair. His mother was human, with rich, smooth skin like milk chocolate and shortish hair that frolicked around her head in jaunty curls. His father was Tolik, a species from a couple of solar systems over, who tended to be taller than humans, with pale skin and narrow features, other than their imposing brows. Blonde hair was a dominant gene among them. Cha'an had ended up with his mother's bone structure, with the exception of his father's prominent forehead and eyebrows. He was close to his mother's height, but had his father's shaggy blonde hair. Interspecies marriage was still relatively novel on Earth, as many Earthers had still only seen aliens on the news 
or in movies imported from other star systems. Somewhat to Cha'an's chagrin, most Taliks guessed that he was human, and most humans guessed that he was Talik, which meant that he had to keep both passports ready wherever he traveled. In theory, yeah, I answered with a shrug. When is she supposed to get here? Bale asked. About twenty minutes ago, I responded as nonchalantly as I could. She's probably still on her way, Cha'an said. Getting around the ring is tricky for noobs. Bale laughed. Yeah, I was an hour and a half late for my first ever job interview up here. Worst part is, I didn't even realize it when I walked in and introduced myself. Seriously? Cha'an said, stifling a chuckle. Yeah, Bale said. When I looked at the clock, I froze up. They told me that a business contact was three hours late the previous day and blamed them for it, though, so I don't think they held it against me. Offered me a job, anyway. Cha'an laughed and turned back to me. What's her name? Sheila, I said uncertainly. Is that how you pronounce it? Bale asked. I hope so, I said. Guess I'll find out soon enough how far off I am, assuming she shows up. As if on cue, a bright smile flashed over Bale's shoulder from the top of a stairway, followed by the wave of a delicate hand. Sheila glided down the steps with a slight bobbing motion, watching her feet the entire way until she reached the bottom, where she stopped and beamed up at me with a triumphant look on her face. Her auburn hair shimmered as if it were in a hairspray advertisement. She's hot, Bale mouthed to me as he and Cha'an excused themselves. Keep us updated, Cha'an said as they walked away. If I make it through the evening without causing some sort of interworld incident, I said quietly as Shayla approached. She stuck out her hand for a handshake, and I took it. Her skin was warm, but felt oddly smooth and somewhat springy, like a combination of silk and a very fine rubber. Am I doing it right? she asked. What? Handshake. You made a face, Sheila said, looking up at me with her huge eyes and twisting a little from side to side. Oh, uh, yeah. You don't shake hands on Taria? I asked. Not usually. It's more of an earther thing. Do you have another greeting? We nuzzle noses. Oh. Really? I asked, a little dumbfounded. Sheila laughed. Only good friends and family. Some people are categorically against it. Oh, I said. I hadn't expected quite such a bubbly demeanor. I'm not against nose-nuzzling. You don't have to humor me, she smiled. I'm not. You have a very nice nose. Sheila laughed again and looked around. Didn't mean to chase away your friends. Sorry. Nah, they were just passing through. I hesitated. Can you say your name for me? Have you forgotten who I am already? Sheila said with a wink. No, not that. I just don't want to butcher your name, I protested. We spent a few minutes working on the pronunciation of Sheila's name, which she said with a melodic lilt that I couldn't replicate. Sheila took pity on me after a few tries, and told me that I was saying it almost perfectly. So, I haven't met any humans named Zen. Sheila said. Oh, yeah, it became fashionable for my parents' generation to name their kids after states of mind and spirit, 
Zen refers to ancient East Asian philosophy. Yeah, I looked it up. It means you're wise. She smiled. Good choice. I laughed. Yeah, I know someone named Compassion. I consider myself lucky. She goes by Mary instead. Shigela's face was blank. Is that a weird name? Sorry, I don't actually know a lot of Earther names. She smiled sheepishly. Oh, yeah, it's a little unusual, even in my generation, I said, rubbing the back of my neck awkwardly. So, I feel bad for asking, but are you okay with coffee? We can get something else. We don't have to get anything, actually. Coffee's fine with me if it's what you want, she responded. I just wanted to make sure. I stumbled over my words. Did you hear about what happened recently to the tourists who hadn't had caffeine before? Oh, yeah, that was so tragic. Tarians are fine with caffeine, though. Doctors have been doing a lot of comparative anatomy research on Tarians and Earthers lately. We're actually mostly alike on the inside, even though we look a little different, she said. Oh, well, no worries, then. And there's the difference in lifespans, Sheila mumbled. We started walking toward the food court. Sheila's comment about comparative anatomy made me think of Cha'an's mixed heritage. The field hadn't become a staple of earth medicine yet, but most developed star systems had been studying it for a while. The caffeine incident had prompted many commentators, human and alien, to call for the immediate inclusion of comparative anatomy in the required curricula of the Earth Medical Education Association. Talik doctors had been studying human anatomy for some time in order to accommodate migrant human workers who were working in Talik space mining companies, so Cha'an's parents knew, when they started dating, that they would be biologically compatible. So can Tarians and humans have kids? I wondered. Realizing I had asked the question aloud, I stopped, mortified, and covered my eyes with my hand. Shayla giggled. I mean, oi, I was just curious. I offered feebly, staring at the floor. Actually, yes, some Tarians and Earthers have had families with a bunch of kids. Works a little better if the woman is Tarian since the pregnancy is longer than it would be for two humans making a baby, but it's shorter than for two Tarians. Makes the Tarian woman feel like they're on vacation, Shiela said, nudging my elbow with hers. I smiled. Can't argue with that, I said. But why the time difference? Oh, well, like I said, we tend to live a little longer than Earthlings, Shiela answered. Her eyes suddenly opened wide, and she covered her mouth with her hands and looked at me tremulously. What's wrong? I asked, confused. Had she suddenly realized the nature of the question I had asked? I'm sorry, she said, her voice muffled by her hands. About what? I called you an earthling. It took me a moment to understand, then I laughed. Oh, don't worry about it. She looked unconvinced. Seriously, I don't think anyone on earth cares. I know it's not politically correct, but there's not any genuine negative history involving that word. I don't want to sound like one of those invaders in old Earth movies who are always calling Earthers Earthlings, Sheila said through her hands. I couldn't keep myself from chuckling. You don't. A few minutes later, we were sitting at a table with a couple of bubble teas. As Sheila sipped on her drink, I allowed myself to stare at her fine but striking features. Huge, dark eyes with impossibly long lashes. A slender nose. Delicately elevated cheekbones. A defined but still soft jawline.
A row of dark dots ran over each eyebrow, a natural birthmark that every Tarian had. I had heard that some Tarians looked at the shape and formation of the dots as an indicator of personality, and sometimes even a predictor of the future, sort of like palm reading. I wondered whether Shiela believed in that, although I didn't dare ask her tonight. Her mouth was wider than most humans' mouths in proportion to her face. When she smiled, I could see her narrow, perfectly straight teeth. Tarians had three canines on the top, and two on the bottom on each side, and their teeth were much sharper than most humans. It sounded frightening when I first read about it, but seeing Shiela in front of me, I thought it looked cute. Shiela looked up, caught me staring, and laughed into her straw. So, you mentioned the age difference, I started. Her eyes widened. I'm not asking how old you are. Just wondered, since you brought it up, what's the average life expectancy on Tarya? It's longer than on Earth, Shiela said, avoiding eye contact. That's what I heard, but I actually don't know the conversion rate between Tarian years and Earth years, I said. I regretted bringing it up, realizing that Shayla seemed uncomfortable with the subject. Never mind, sorry. No, she said. I should tell you how old I am. I really didn't mean to put you on the spot. You didn't. I'm 83 in Tarian years. The number gave me a jolt, but I maintained the best poker face I could and tried to remember how long a Tarian year was in Earth years. Okay, so that's only... Wait, Tarian years are longer than Earth years. 136 in Earth years, Shiela said quickly. I didn't say anything for a moment. Shiela stared at her tea. Wow, I finally said. You don't look a day over 23. She laughed. In Earth years, you mean? Yeah, we age pretty slowly. I wasn't sure how safe it was to ask more questions about her age. A long time ago, way back before we became connected to the star grid, Tarians had a much lower life expectancy, closer to Earther lifespans, Shayla offered. By closer, you mean about 200 years? I couldn't help it. Shayla burst out laughing. Actually, yeah, that's exactly what I mean. Medical advances and general improvements in the quality of living on Taria have increased the typical life expectancy since then, though. Dare I ask by how much? The oldest people I know are about five centuries or so. Earth centuries, that is. Ah, I nodded. I didn't think I'd have been much more shocked if they had been Tarian centuries. So? I searched for something to say, but I couldn't stop thinking about that number. Human lifespans had steadily increased over the decades leading to Earth's first contact with the star grid, and we could now reasonably expect to live up to a century and a half. But that was still barely older than Shiela was now. I wondered why she was interested in talking to me. You must have seen so many things by now, I said. So many more than I have, I thought. I guess, Shiela said, casting her glance sideways but there's so much more to see, especially here on Earth. More than Ontario? I asked. Yeah. I've been reading your blog. Well, you knew that. But you do a lot of traveling, right? I smiled. I've never left the solar system. Look at you. You came halfway across the galaxy to get here. Sometimes you have to get up and move if you want to find something worthwhile, Sheila said in return. But I don't mean interstellar traveling. 
you've actually explored your whole planet. You even went to Jupiter, right? Well, yeah, but that just seems so much smaller than moving to a new star. She scrunched up her nose. You spend most of the trip in hibernation. It's a little scary before you leave, but that's not the same as traveling around a planet. You're awake the whole time. You have to learn new languages and figure everything out along the way, right? Interstellar travel is pretty automatic by comparison. I hadn't thought of it that way. Well, it's much easier to get around Earth than it used to be. National borders got softer when we moved to continental coalitions. And technology. You can fly around the world in about six hours now. Still, Sheila said, it's more exciting than sleeping for six months. I've had so much fun reading your posts. You're really inquisitive. It's nice to meet someone who's genuinely enthusiastic about something. Well, thanks, I said, surprised. After a brief pause, I added, I'd think that Tarians would all be the wisest people in the galaxy, given that you have so much time, both individually and collectively. Imagine how quickly you must expand your world's knowledge in just one lifetime. And not just scientific advances. I feel like on Earth, we build on technological advances pretty well, but when it comes to what matters, it's kind of two steps forward and one step back. I think each generation has to start over a bit when it comes to learning how to be human. You know, how to be a sentient being and be good to others. But maybe that would be the same no matter how long we lived. I stirred my tea bubbles with my straw. Sheila's eyes had narrowed slightly as she listened. She stared at me thoughtfully for several seconds, and then the corners of her mouth tilted upward in a benevolent smile. She suddenly struck me as much older than her face and voice made her seem. I get what you mean, Zen, but a lot of people on Taria are actually pretty jaded. Her deep, dark eyes seemed to stare through the table, at a place I couldn't see. Most people I know back home don't show any sense of urgency. Those long lifespans are a mixed blessing. I think that a lot of Tarians just got used to the idea that they'd live for centuries. So they don't feel compelled to explore or even ask questions. She stopped and pursed her lips, then continued. And you're probably right. The wisest people I've ever met are pretty much invariably older Tarians. But I think the average Earther I've met just seems so much more... driven. You all want to learn things and accomplish what's never been accomplished. You're probably right, I said. Some of us feel the need to cram in as much as we can. But I know my share of humans who are jaded and uninquisitive, too. Maybe it's less about age and more about feeling too comfortable. You get complacent with the status quo. I thought about it some more. And I think that humans have a history of rushing to conclusions about what our problems are and how to solve them. Sometimes we don't ask enough questions. Everything has to happen now. We're always running out of time. Sheila had leaned her chin on her folded hands and was smiling at me wistfully. Like an Earth movie, she said. Her teeth seemed to shimmer in the light. You have to save the world in two hours. Am I the hero? I asked with a smile. She winked. You could be. I looked at our empty cups. Would you like to take a walk? I'd love to, she said, blinking slowly. As we walked, Sheila asked me questions about the history of the ring. Its name was purely functional. While the ring was technically a huge space station, 
It circled Earth like a mechanical version of Saturn's rings. It was actually one of humanity's crowning accomplishments, and the impetus that led to our first contact with the star grid. When neighboring planets saw that the people of Earth had constructed an extraterrestrial device of such scale and complexity that required the cooperation of people around the world to build and operate, they reasoned that the time had come to initiate contact with us. Sheila nodded at this point in the narrative. That's been standard procedure for the better part of a millennium in Tarian years. Self-determination. Let the people of each planet evolve spiritually and scientifically until they're ready to join the grid as productive citizens of the galaxy. We don't have a lot of access to pre-grid history on Earth yet, I said. I've heard that something terrible happened to prompt that approach, but what was it? Sheila frowned and stopped in front of a transparent wall that allowed a crystal-clear view of the stars. Representatives from the grid went to a particularly violent planet to intervene. It was full of war and genocide. They tried to end the killing by opening the people's eyes to the broader civilization around them, around the galaxy. They thought that it would inspire the people doing the killing to stop, to accelerate their evolution. Roystok. I attempted to sound out the name of the planet. That was about the only concrete detail I had actually heard before. Sheila nodded. What happened? I asked, hesitantly. She sighed. The most powerful people in Roystok played along long enough to get access to some of the grid's shared technology. As soon as they could figure out how to use it to make more powerful weapons, they turned around and used that knowledge to exterminate their enemies back on their homeworld. The fighting spilled over to other planets that took sides. The bloodshed became even worse. I grimaced. Thousands turned into millions? She shook her head. Millions turned into billions. Their species was on the brink of annihilating itself. That's why the grid stepped in in the first place. Nobody had ever seen a death toll that high on one planet. Millions of people dying. Sheila's eyes had turned glossy. I put a hand on her shoulder. We don't have to keep talking about this. She smiled and blinked a few times, still looking out at the stars. No, it's important to remember. My grandparents served in the grid security forces. They saw it firsthand. It was horrible. But that's why the policy is in place. We don't want to allow people to kill each other, but it's even worse when it's not contained. That's the rationale, anyway. The lesser of two evils, I think you call it on Earth. Yeah, I whispered. I actually kind of hate that expression. Sheila laughed, although I still heard the pain in her voice. I put an arm around her shoulders and gave her a gentle squeeze. Thanks, she whispered, leaning her head momentarily on my shoulder. After a few seconds of silence, Sheila straightened up and turned to look at me directly. Do you ever wish you were back on Earth, instead of up here in the ring? Not really, I responded, glancing sideways and sticking out my lip as I considered the question. When I was growing up, I'd look up in the sky and see the ring. It was like a huge, shiny rainbow. It made me feel that I was connected to a world that was much larger than the things I saw around me. I've seen pictures of the sky on Earth before the ring was built, and it just looks so lonely to me by comparison. Being up here makes me feel connected to a bunch of different worlds at once. Sheila smiled. I like the way you think.
So, she said, stretching her arms behind her. What do I need to know if I'm going to spend some time down on the surface? Are you going down for work? I asked. Let's assume that I'm just sightseeing with a very good tour guide, Sheila responded. I provided a broad overview of trends in global history and politics over the prior few centuries. Earth had collectively adopted a new timeline since joining the grid, the Interstellar Era, or IE, with the year of first contact set as year zero. During the early part of the second millennium CE, before first contact, Earth governments had formed supranational federal systems known as the Continental Coalitions, which had in turn enabled the cooperation necessary to build the ring and subsequently manage interaction with other planets' governments, the Grid Council, and the Sector Consulate. The Grid served the whole connected galaxy, while sectors were clusters of star systems grouped together by locale. Shiela explained that the Tarian system, by contrast, operated more like city-states with one overarching global parliament. Not many people lived outside the cities, except farmers and rangers. We came to a staircase, and Shiela suddenly stopped as I started to descend. Are you okay? I asked. She nodded. I was hoping we wouldn't encounter too many of these tonight. I was confused. Too many of what? Shiela smiled sheepishly. You're going to laugh. I promise to try not to. She sighed. Stairs. I looked at the stairs. You wanted to avoid stairs? I started to wonder whether this was something I should have known. It's not a big deal, Shiela said, shaking her head. Stairs aren't common on Taria. We've had high technology for so long, we have high-speed elevators between levels in pretty much every building. Tarian architects eschew stairs because they see them as an inefficient use of space. Nice use of eschew, I said. Would you like to go another way? Shiela shook her head. No, I should get used to taking stairs if I'm going to spend time here. There are even more of them on Earth, right? I nodded, frowning thoughtfully. Practice makes perfect. Shayla giggled and proceeded to walk slowly down the stairs the same way she had when I first saw her, bobbing up with each step before firmly planting her foot on the next step. When she got to the bottom, she turned and smiled at me, her lips shut tight. I wasn't sure, but it looked as though she was blushing. Perfect form, I said. She laughed again. Thanks. We found ourselves in an observatory with a breathtaking view of the Earth. I stopped and stared. While I had spent plenty of time in the ring, it still seemed extraordinary to me that humanity had managed to build this colossal structure, a space station with a diameter wider than that of the planet where our biological progenitors had crawled out of the oceans billions of years ago. Thinking deep thoughts? Sheila asked. I smiled. I always get lost in the view. Of course I know the story, but it's like, how did we build this? Wait until you see the capital, Shayla said with a wink. The capital of the star grid, right? Definitely on my bucket list, I responded. Why wait? Well, I could use a guide. I know a person, she said, looking through the glass at the earth and the ring. We stood side by side for a moment, admiring the view. After a while, she spoke again. What's that? 
I turned to look, then grimaced. It was my turn to share some unpleasant history. Oh, that's the sphere. The sphere? Yeah, you haven't heard of it? Sheila pursed her lips and shook her head. No, should I have? I gave it some consideration. I suppose not. The Earth Tourism Agency probably doesn't say anything about it in their promotional materials. I can see why they wouldn't. I feel like I should have known about this, Sheila said with a frown. So I could impress you with my knowledge. I am already impressed, I said, smiling. She blushed again. So, the sphere. I wasn't sure where to start. I guess I'll start at the beginning. About fifty years ago, Earth was a less peaceful place than it is now. There weren't any major wars going on at that point, but there was always the threat of violence. There were also other types of organized violent conflict. Isolated acts of terrorism, for example. So, ideologically motivated as opposed to fighting over resources? Sheila inquired. I nodded. Yeah. The notion of resource scarcity started declining after we built ships that could travel to the asteroid belt and other planets. The technology to get there had to be extremely efficient already, so we had already made huge strides with solar energy and other types of power. And then, once there were massive mining operations in place, the issue was no longer having enough materials to build. It was more about where to start and how to prioritize. When the ring opened, the open space allowed a lot of people to move off the surface, and there was suddenly much more space for agriculture both on the surface and in the ring. Food scarcity kind of stopped being a thing. Sheila smiled. Progress can happen quickly. I tilted my head to the side. Some of it. She frowned. So, what is the sphere? Right. As I said, most remaining conflict was ideological. Extremists holding on to certain group identities in the worst way. Some national or ethnic, some religious, some just out there. Extreme how? In the sense that they believed they couldn't coexist with people who were different than they were. Like on Roystock, she added. Yeah, I think so. We didn't have open war, but there were too many people who seemed to want it. They wanted war? Sheila looked bewildered. When they had peace? I nodded slowly. As bizarre as it sounds, yes. I think that most of them believed that it was inevitable. They didn't see themselves as warmongers. I honestly think that they viewed themselves as prophets. Foretelling the destiny of humankind, Sheila said. It was a corroboration rather than a question. Sound familiar? I asked. Too familiar, Sheila said, her brow furrowed. She fixed her serious expression on me. Zen, as good as you are at explaining things, I can't help but notice that you still haven't told me what the sphere is. The sphere is where the warmongers live. They live there? All of them? Pretty much, yeah, I responded. Together? She added. Yes. How? I don't understand. Most humans had gotten to the point where they were tired of armed conflict. Unsupportive of it. There were enough resources to go around, and most people didn't believe in intrinsic divisions between humans anymore. We still celebrated cultural differences, 
but we came together to do it. Most people finally saw killing as something that needed to be left in the past. That's called sanity. So how did you get the people who wanted to fight to just move off the planet together, and not into the ring? Well, we... We gave them what they wanted. Shigelo cocked her head to the side. What do you mean? We gave them a place where they could fight. Shiela's head turned slowly back toward the sphere. She didn't say anything for a while. I wondered what she was thinking. Had her opinion of humans suddenly dropped? So they're fighting each other in there? Like a war? Yes, it doesn't end. They're fighting right now, she continued. My shoulders slumped a bit. Yes, I assume. I hear it's a constant battleground in there. Her gaze never left the sphere. It looks so peaceful from out here. I'd never have guessed what was happening inside. I set my jaw and pressed my lips together. Maybe coming to the observatory had been a mistake. I hope you don't think less of Earthlings now, I finally said. Sheila turned back to look at me, her eyes wide. Then she laughed in surprise. Earthlings? No, not at all. In fact, I was just wondering how many lives something like this sphere could have saved on Roystok. If you think about it, it's basically the same principle as the grid policy. Let people fight until they've evolved enough to join the rest of civilization in harmony. But you Earthers managed to do it yourselves. You contained it. Shiela thought for a while longer, then asked, But how do you contain it? Why do they agree to banish themselves? That's a good question, I said. I think that the people in there believe that they're getting a leg up on the competition. There have been documentaries and news interviews about the people fighting, and they generally point to that theme. People who think that war is inevitable and natural go into the sphere to fight for their faction, whichever group that is. They don't need to worry about what the international community thinks. Where do they get their weapons? These days, I think most of them manufacture their own. So there are limits on how much firepower anyone has in there. Nobody can build a nuclear bomb, for example. They just don't have access to the resources. What if someone sneaks in the materials they need? Can't. People outside the sphere don't want war, but we're prepared to protect ourselves. We have automated guards that can neutralize just about any weapon and put any living creature on Earth in a coma in a heartbeat. Nobody's sneaking in or out, and people have tried. Who funds the factions, though? Sheila frowned harder. You're not arming them with taxpayer funds, are you? Good question, and heavens no, I answered. They're all self-funded. If people believe in their causes that much, they're allowed to go and spend their money on their wars. Sheila's frown continued to evolve into different manifestations. So people with lots of money can just pour it into perpetuating these conflicts? Oh no, I said. If you want to finance one of the factions, then you have to go live with them. There have been a few billionaires who have actually moved into the sphere to join the fight. The money is never enough to end the conflicts in any one faction's favor, but true believers always think they can win. So what about now? How do you keep people from bringing the fight to Earth or the Ring? You might be surprised at how readily people volunteer to move to the sphere. They think that the rest of us are all clueless, and they'll take care of us soon enough. First, they need to take out their true enemies, and then we'll all either surrender or join them. 
That's the sort of thing I've heard, anyway. And as I mentioned, anyone who tries to start a fight outside the sphere won't last long. The Guardian bots take them out right away. Wow. But who controls the Guardians? No one. It was a risk, but the leaders who were spearheading the charge to global peace realized that we all needed skin in the game. So a group of engineers from all over the world programmed the bots to be autonomous. They went through a ton of testing, and every government had a chance to review every line of code. It took years before there was consensus, but there was finally enough pressure from politicians' voter constituencies to make it happen. How do you update them? We don't. They're basically their own species. They're not programmed with a full AI, so they don't have the capacity to feel something such as ambition or resentment. They simply watch for aggressors, and they respond with commensurate force to nullify the threat. And everyone on Earth agree to this? Well, nothing is ever unanimous. Some people were resistant to the Sphere on moral grounds, and some to the Guardians because we couldn't be sure what they'd do if we set them loose. Between the people who wanted to go to the Sphere and the people who wanted to send them there, though, there was more than enough support to outnumber the people who were against the whole idea. Sheila thought about it for a while longer, her hand on her mouth. So you keep it nearby so that you can send other people to the Sphere if they want to go? That's part of it, I said. And to monitor what's going on, especially so we can make sure no one gets out and bothers any other planet. And to bring some fighters into rehab. Rehab? Sheila repeated. Rehabilitation. Like treating someone for a drug addiction. Some people want to come out, so we test them to see whether they have truly moved on or it's just a ruse. People who genuinely want to rejoin society need dedicated attention. I've met some of them here on the ring. To hear them talk, it's like overcoming brainwashing. They have to develop a completely new worldview. Sheila nodded. What about kids? You don't. No children in this sphere, I interjected. Sorry for interrupting. That's been the rule since the beginning. People have never been able to take minors with them. So the families split up? Yes. The kids stay on Earth, usually with other relatives, sometimes in foster care. Their parents would rather join a war than be with their kids? I shrugged. When your devotion to your cause is that strong, you believe it transcends family. It sounds backwards from out here, but in there, the people who left their families behind think they're fighting for the children's future. Sheila shook her head. What do those children do when they get older? From what I've seen, they usually resent their parents for leaving them behind. I haven't seen many go take up the fight. A few do. Some families are still pretty entrenched in their segregated worldviews. But most would rather be part of the broader civilization we have out here. Have any children ever been born in this sphere? I grimaced again and exhaled through my nose. It does happen from time to time. The children are extracted immediately and taken to Earth. They generally don't go back to the sphere when they get older. There was one famous journalist who did, though. He went as an adult to meet his parents. Both had gone in, but only his father was still alive. He stayed inside for three months, managed to survive, and then he wrote a book about it. Shayla shook her head again, her eyes wide and her mouth slightly ajar. That's a lot to process. I feel as though more people should know about this, though. Something like this fear could allow other planets to join the grid sooner, and we could save millions of lives. So many people who don't want to be a part of the violence are stuck on planets where they can't escape it. I smiled at her. Maybe you'll be the one to pioneer a sphere system across the grid.
Sheila smiled back at me. It's terrible that any sentient beings are killing any other sentient beings, but if they want to do it, then they can at least go somewhere isolated and leave the rest of us out of it, right? I shrugged. That's how we do it on Earth. Sheila stared through the window. Her gaze seemed distant this time. She wasn't looking at the Earth, the Ring, or the Sphere. War stopped being part of Tardian culture so long ago. There's been an abundance of natural resources for millennia. There's a vaccine or a cure for every illness on Tardia. And everything moves so slowly. The notion of fighting over anything seems so foreign until you get off the planet. I did wonder how everyone's life expectancy was so high. She leaned against the glass and looked up at me. Her eyes narrowed and her brow furrowed, but her mouth opened in a smile. How do you know all this stuff, anyway? poli major, I responded. Not that anyone's really listening to what I have to say. I'm listening, Sheila said. She rested her fingers gingerly on my forearm. What about you? I asked. I majored in intercivilization studies. Intercivilization studies. Comparing civilizations across planets, species, solar systems. I guess we're two of a kind, I offered. I think we are, she said. Her eyes seemed to glitter. If we're done reflecting on war, there's a garden upstairs. Plants from across the sector. It's beautiful. And there's an escalator. Low-tech earth stuff, but you don't have to take the stairs. Let's go, Sheila said. She slid her fingers down to mine, and I squeezed her hand. We headed to the garden level. A few steps in, Shayla shrieked and grabbed my arm with both hands, then covered her face with one hand and left, her other arm tucked into mine. What happened? I asked, my heart pumping. The other people in the garden gave us wide-eyed glances and then looked away. Shayla pointed down with her free hand. I looked and then realized what had frightened her. The floors in the garden, like so many of the outer walls in the ring, were made of thick, reinforced glass so that visitors could see stars above, around, and underfoot, between rows of flowers. Sorry, I should have mentioned it before we came in. No, it's okay, she murmured, her head against my shoulder. I just hadn't seen any transparent floors since I left the capital. It caught me by surprise. I hesitated for a moment. Then I leaned over and kissed her forehead. Her huge, dark eyes watched me, silent and still. Her lips curved in a soft smile. I started to get lost in her eyes and her lips, so I looked to the side awkwardly and thought of something to say. I like to come out here and enjoy the view and think, I said. It makes me feel like I'm going somewhere. You are certainly going somewhere, Zen, Sheila said. Care to join me? I asked, trying to sound confident. Yes. She took my hand and led me farther into the garden. That's today's story. As always, thank you for listening to What the Flame Whispers. If you enjoyed it, please take a moment to review the podcast and share it with someone special. And keep an eye on BlackfireTiger.com or connect with me on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram to see the continuing adventures of Zen and Shiela. This is Cheskino, and I'll catch you next time on What the Flame Whispers.